According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 6 once again this morning. Proverbs chapter 6, uh, verses 16 through 19. Six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And we covered uh, eyes and tongue last week. Uh, We didn't do all of tongue, so we'll get back to that this morning. And then we have hands, heart, and feet. The first five of these seven are all body parts. Then uh, it's only six and seven then where we go beyond body parts and we start talking about the false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. Closely linked together, the liar and the strife spreader and uh, aspects there. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our time in his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for the blessings we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness this hour, Father, for the word of God to go forth, that you would hedge us about and protect us, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm or stop what we're doing. Father, uh, also the technology is in your hands. If the microphone's going to work or not work or whatever else is going to happen, we just leave that with you as well, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 6, as we have worked our way through, we saw the first few verses were dealing with financial matters, and uh, there's a, of course, we're still in the parental wisdom portion of the book of Proverbs, which is chapters 1 through 9, and a lot of the advice that you want to give to your son before he leaves home, a lot of the advice, not just your son, your daughter, young people need to know before they leave home to, uh, as they enter into adult accountability in their generation. Much of that deals with sexual immorality, and we've been talking about those issues in the earlier chapters. As uh, we switch from chapter 5 into chapter 6, it turns from sexual issues to financial issues. And so in uh, verses 1 through 5, the first financial issue is the entanglement with your neighbor. Uh, The first admonition is a warning against the financial entanglements of others. There are those that you are required to be entangled with, and that is your family, Uh, But your neighbor, you are not uh, required to be entangled with. In fact, you are warned against being entangled with. And that's verses 1 through 5. The second financial matter comes in verses um, 6 through 11, and that's the issue of laziness. David's second financial admonition is a warning against laziness. And this is what we see in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. And so uh, it's a good place to turn if you're dealing with anyone on that particular issue and need some uh, wisdom to be brought into focus, you have good uh, information there in verses 6 through 11. Now, as in the progression of this, as we go from the entanglements to the sluggard and beyond, we see the progression of this because the ending of 6 through 11 is focusing on the vagabond and the, uh, what did I call him? The um, vagabond and the drifter or the bandit. I think I called him a bandit. Uh, at that point of time, uh, when uh, your need comes in like an armed man. And obviously, um, it's, it's never uh, desirable to have vagrants um, on your property, in your house, or, or something of that nature. 
Uh, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about the vagrant uh, related to the discipline that they're under and the consequences of their, uh, of, of their being a sluggard in that regard. But so we have this progression as we work our way through and we see that uh, your poverty comes in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. That's verse 11. That's then what builds into the next paragraph because the next paragraph expands upon this uh, concept with the worthless person, the wicked man, the son of Belial, as he's introduced here. And so in the third point of the outline, as we looked at it, point three, as a follow-up to the admonishment against the sluggard, David warned Solomon against Adam Belial. Adam Belial, went ahead and called it a proper name, Ish-Awin, the strife spreader. And, and so we see the progression in this chapter that's taken us from one paragraph to the next to the next. Likewise, the strife spe- uh, spreader that we see in this paragraph, thir- uh, 12 through 15, you'll spot it in verse 14, with perversity in his heart, continually devises evil who spreads strife. That's what this guy is about. He's a troublemaker. You want nothing to do with him. Get rid of him. And uh, the issue is there, because the longer you tolerate him, the worse it gets. Now, with the heart continually devising evil, well, guess what? That comes back again in verse 18. It's number six. Uh, no, not six. Uh, heart. The, in verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. Right? So it's the fourth item on the list. Uh, and, and then uh, the strife spreader in verse 19. That's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle. So each one of these paragraphs is leading to the next, leading to the next, leading to the next. And uh, the case is being built, I think, pretty powerfully in this, uh, in this connection. All right, now that gets us to point four where we are today. Yahweh hates the abominations of his soul. God is a God of love. And of course, all the, the modern, uh, postmodern, uh, wishy-washy types want us to emphasize the love of God. And, uh, and anything related to hate is, is a problem in, in their view. Uh, but not so in the, in the biblical view. God hates an awful lot of things. And if we don't hate what God hates, we need an attitude adjustment when it comes right down to it. We want to make sure, though, that our hate, like our anger, is without sin. As, as uh, Ephesians says, be angry yet do not sin. And I think likewise, the principles involved, we, if we hate what God hates, then we too will hate yet without sin. Okay? We want to understand this for what it is. The abominations to his soul, or the abominations of his soul. An abomination is something you want nothing to do with. You want to drive it far from you. And that's the imagery of it there. And so we have the hatred in uh, the vocabulary of sané, the Hebrew verb sané that speaks of hatred. Yahweh loves, yes. I can give you a whole list of verses for the love of Yahweh. But interesting how so many of those also parallel the hate of Yahweh. Yahweh loves and Yahweh hates. And we got several verses with the hate of Yahweh that we looked at a couple weeks back as we introduced this paragraph. And critical that we recognize it is a non-contradictory perfection. It is non-contradictory. The world will try to get you and, and attack you and say, well, you, you just hate whatever. You know, if you, if you preach the Bible's message against homosexuality, for example, well, then you're just a hater. You're a, you're a homophobe. You're a, you're, you, you hate gays and, and all this other stuff. Um, amazing, they take the sin they, they, they're trying to champion. And if you preach against the sin, well, then you're just a hater. All right? It's not true. But even if it was true, who says it's wrong? Because hate is biblical once we start to understand it, all right? And uh, in certain respects, if we are lining our hate up with God's hate, well, then just wear it proudly and say, yes, I do. It's an abomination to my soul because it's an abomination to God's soul. 
and uh, and just take it from there. And instead of them hitting you with some kind of an argument that they think shuts it all down and gives them the game winner, well, you just say, yeah, I hate. How about that? God hates too. But he also loves. And because he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And just turn it into a gospel opportunity and take them to the scriptures they don't really want to talk about, <laughs> I think, in the first place. Uh, the idea of an abomination, a tokneva, we've uh, seen before. We actually studied it a bit when we were in chapter 3. Uh, the Really the key passage, if you truly want to understand these abominations, comes in Leviticus 18, uh, Leviticus 20. There's some other places you can turn to, but there's a very concentrated paragraph there in Leviticus 18 where you have it in verses 22, 26, 27, 29, and 30. You've got a very concentrated section there where God discusses the things that are an abomination in his sight in a passage that gets very blunt related to the, the sexual issues there and the, and the uh, things that, that displease the Lord. Abomination is a revulsion. If you want a uh, synonym, think of it as a revulsion, a compelling impulse to drive something far from one's presence. All right, so it's not phobic, it's, it's revulsive, okay? I'm not afraid of it, it's, I'm disgusted by it. And, and that's, the, that's a big difference. And uh, uh, I think it was, uh, who was it? One of the big Baptist pastors. It was Ergen Kainer years ago that said, uh, he said, I'm not homophobe, homophobic, I'm, I'm homo-nauseous. <laughs> he says, I'm sick of hearing about it, you know, because they they're throwing it in your face all the time and it's on all the entertainment and every show and all kinds of stuff. Well, that's not far off target when it comes to Tokneva in that it's a revulsion and the idea of nausea, where you just expel something from, you know, something unpleasant from your stomach. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the mindset of it there. And this is what we deal with with abomination. Not every sin is called an abomination, by the way. All right? And, and so when we lock in on those that are abominations, and we say, well, how can we make a difference from sin? Isn't all sin sin? Isn't uh, everything falls short of the glory of God? Does it not? I, I agree with that. But, there, but not every sin is called an abomination to his soul. We want to understand that as well. And interestingly, interestingly enough, even though Leviticus 26 was heavy on the sexual items, calling them all abominations, there is nothing sexual in this paragraph here. Okay, When it comes to the, the uh, eyes and the, the tongue and the hands and the heart and the feet and the false witness and the strife, okay, nothing in there is explicitly sexual. In uh, as far as the language of this paragraph is concerned. Last week we took some time to spell out the poetry in the, in the formula here, 6 and 7, and uh, took the time to identify other places in the Old Testament where this formula appears. It's, uh, it's called the X and X plus 1 formula. All right, X and X plus 1. And it's not always 6 and 7. Uh, as in some of those we saw it was three and four. In some of those it's, it could be uh, five and six. It could be two and three. All right. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the X is, as long as the next one is, the, is one more, it's, it's the plus one. And so here it's six and seven. And like I say, and, and Amos and, and uh, Proverbs uh, 30, uh, Job chapter five, it could be a different set of numbers, but the, the formula works. The formula is consistent in terms of Hebrew usage. Uh, if it is X and X plus 1. And so the purpose for that, by the way, is not to give an exhaustive list. It's not to say that there are seven and only seven. It's not to say that this is an exhaustive list, and if your sin doesn't make the list, then you're okay. All right? It doesn't say that at all. 
But what it is used for is to give a, a, a you know a top list, a, a high number, and to highlight the very final one. The purpose is to highlight, to stress the ultimate item as the culmination or the product of the preceding items. And so it really puts the spotlight on, in this case, the seventh one, the one who spreads strife among a brother. The, the strife spreader is the pinnacle of this paragraph, and it's the one that really drives everything else in the chapter. Not to excuse the other six, or not to excuse sins that aren't in the top six, but that number seven, that, that pinnacle one, is the one that is really being emphasized in uh, the poetry here. All right, so under point D then, let's look at the seven sins, okay? They're not the seven deadly sins. Have you ever heard about that? The seven deadly sins? That's medieval Roman Catholicism, okay? It's not biblical. You can search the scriptures for seven deadly sins and you're not going to find them, okay? Greed and gluttony and lust and pride and whatever. I forget now how the list works. They've made movies based upon the seven deadly sins and all the rest. Uh, but it's medieval Roman Catholicism. It's not biblical. Um, it was a way, and Roman Catholics tended to make a difference. They, they classify sins as the venal and mortal sins, you know, and the some that, you know, you can get uh, absolved from your priest if you make your uh, confession and your penance and you can do enough Hail Marys to work them off. And they're not quite as bad. But the mortal sins, oh my goodness, okay, they take extreme penance and probably some time in purgatory <laughs> when it comes right down to it. Well, we're not going to go there this morning. Uh, but we have God's soul, the sovereign's soul, sana, his hatred. And so there are seven sins that do stimulate the sovereign's soul, sana, God's soul, hatred. And as we've worked our way through, the first five of these are body parts, starting with the eyes, and not just any eyes, eyes ramoth, eyes ramoth, specifically haughty eyes, eyes that are so lifted up they are so full of themselves, high exalted eyes. And you see this today in people and politicians and, you know, you see them on camera and every time you see them, they are so full of themselves. You just, you, you look at them and you can see it's, it's communicated in their, in their very, uh, you know, body language and in the, the very expressions on their face as uh, if, if they bother to turn their gaze upon you, you're, you're clearly beneath their notice <laughs> when it comes down to that. High, exalted eyes reflect the haughtiness of pride. And so you see the pride in the eyes. And uh, oftentimes, and you know this, if with child raising or other things, you know, you, you can see, uh, you can hear words. You can hear words and the words sound uh, penitent. Uh, but you can see in the eyes, there's no penance there. There's no, there's, all there is is pride behind those eyes. Uh, at least so I'm told, not my children, of course. I don't know where these illustrations come from sometimes. But from what I've been told, that can happen. Understand, the haughty eyes, this is more than just a personal sin of pride, more than just uh, you know, we, you know, personal sins that any human, any believer can fall into from time to time. More than simple pride or arrogance, this expression epitomizes Satan's revolutionary intentions. And when you read the description of Leviathan in Job chapter 40, uh, or Job 41, and you see that he is king over all the sons of pride, and all of the description of the dragon and his majesty and his glory and his might and his power, um, nothing on earth is like him. 
one made without fear, and he is king over all the sons of pride. And we realize, I'm not surprised this is first on the list, of, the, uh, of that which stimulates his hatred. All right, the second one is his tongue. <clears throat> and I meant to fix that. I spotted that typo last week. The tongue, uh, it's not a big typo. It's just I like a space in between sheker and sheker. Uh, the Hebrew is sheker, the lying tongue. It is a tongue sheker. Now, we all have a tongue. We just don't want to have a tongue sheker. In the book of James, it talks about how dangerous the tongue is because the very same tongue is the tongue that praises God, is the very same tongue that blasphemes, is the very same tongue that slanders, is the very same tongue that lies. And how much damage can be done by the tongue? Well, this is the stock and trade for evil spirits, absolutely rejected by the Psalm 119 psalmist, ought to be absolutely rejected by us as well. And uh, we're going to have a trinity of uh, this expression in chapter 12 when we get that far. And I believe we looked at these as we were running out of time last week, so let me grab these again. Proverbs 12, and then we'll back up a little bit and we'll look at some demons in uh, 1 Kings. But Proverbs chapter 12, where we have a trinity of sheker principles. We don't want to have a tongue sheker. I didn't write down the Strong's number for Shecker, so if you really want it, send me an email and I'll find it for you. All right, Shecker. And in Proverbs 12, there's a trinity of these in verse 17 and verse 19 and verse 22. Um, Remember, when we get to chapter 12, we're out of the family wisdom portion or the parental wisdom portion. Now we're into more of the, the main section of the book of Proverbs where sometimes there's not a lot of connection from verse to verse. But we've got a lot of parallelism within each of these verses. So verse uh, 17 says, He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. And here's our shucker tongue in this this passage. And it's the difference between what is right, that is uh, yashar, straight and right, proper, and then deceit. That's verse 17. Verse 19, Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. And you'll notice both in verse 17 and in verse 19, uh, truth versus lie are posed as opposites. They're posed as um, uh, the antithesis, one of another. You can't blend them. There's no such thing as just a little white lie or just partial truth or a partial lie or something that's in between, all right? Because any amount of lie that you're mixing into the truth makes the whole thing a lie. Verse 22, lying lips, okay? So it's not just a tongue that can be shecker. Lips can be shecker. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. He delights in faithfulness. That's why he delights in his son above all others. Jesus Christ is the ultimate faithful. He is faithful and true. And so, of course, he has a delight in his son. But the liar is an abomination. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Now, again, I think, I think we spoke of this last week, but the concept of lying, we think, well, what's the big deal? Why is this so severe? Why is this ranked right up there with murder in, uh, in so many passages? As, as the devil was a liar from the beginning and he was a murderer from the beginning. Why are those linked together the way that they are? Because these are fundamental issues in which the character of God himself is under attack. God is a God of truth. 
The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. His Son is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is, is, is essential to all three members of Trinity. Truth is essential to God Himself as absolute veracity. And so the lie is an attack on the truth of God. Just like murder is an attack on the life of God. God is life. God, uh, we are made in the image of God. And, and if, if we murder, well, then we're to be put to death. Because the, the sin of murder is an attack on the very life of God. The sin of lying is an attack on the very truth of God. And so these, I'm not surprised that these come hand in hand the way that they do. Now, the lying tongue is stock in trade for evil spirits. And let's look at 1 Kings 22. This is a, a popular passage for me. I, I use it a lot in different contexts. Um, I, I go here a lot of my own meditation and my own thinking, and then I use it a lot for illustrations and in Bible messages. And for whatever reason, maybe it's because 2222 is a road that heads west out of town, and if I'm going to go to a barbecue place I like, then I think of 2222. But uh, 1 Kings 2222 has... Uh, this information here. It's, a, it's an interesting scene in heaven. And we have the uh, prophet Micaiah, and I'm looking forward to meeting Micaiah someday. Uh, he was clearly, he was a, a faithful prophet because uh, the king of Israel hated him so much. <laughs> and uh, this is where Jehoshaphat's in town on a business trip, you know, visiting his fellow king in the north. Jehoshaphat's the king in the south. And uh, they're considering a joint uh, military expedition. And, and uh, Jehoshaphat's looking around and says, well, don't you have any real prophets? <laughs> um, you know, is, there a prophet of Israel, is there a prophet of Yahweh around? You know, Down in Jerusalem, I inquire of the prophets of Yahweh. And uh, so in, in verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, uh, well... There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him. <laughs> you know, I hate him. It's like of all the pastors in town, there's one that really kind of teaches the Bible, but I, I, I hate him. So I don't go to that church. And the reason why is because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And there you have it. Most people don't want truth. They just want to be told what they want to hear anyway. And as long as you tell them what they want to hear anyway, well then, yeah, we'll pay good money for that. <laughs> so... This is what we have. And so Micaiah is brought in and he's, uh, he is a faithful prophet. And this is what he prophesies. So verse, uh, as you get down to verse 18, and the northern king is like, I told you so. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And then it builds from that in verse 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Now, why are the host of heaven divided like that? Well, you would think the host of heaven would all be the good angels, right? They'd all be the elect angels. The host of heaven would all be the obedient angels that, that stand before the Lord. Not so. The, the, the title host of heaven also includes the fallen angels. It also includes the, the uh, demonic spirits. It includes the the Nephilim souls of the, of the hybrids, of the, what we understand were the Nephilim offspring of the fallen angels and the human women. All right. They have this title as evil spirits, as uh, demons, disembodied spirits. 
And, and elect angels and fallen angels alike are called host of heaven. All right? But they're divided left and right, similar to how sheep and goats get divided left and right in Matthew uh, 25. And they're divided left and right. Uh, I, I expect that's for safety reasons. Um, and, and, and other reasons, right? Judicial. They're, they're here before the, the throne of God. They're here before his judicial court. That's significant, okay? In terms of the prosecution and the defense. Uh, there's two sides in the courtroom. And so far as we understand it, even to this day in the age of grace, in the church age, to this day, Satan still has access to the, to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And that bugs me to tears, but, you know, I'm not God, and God puts up with it in ways that I wouldn't put up with it. Satan still has access to the Supreme Court of, of Heaven. He's expelled from, the, from the, the temple. He no longer has access to the holy place, that is, the temple of Heaven, but he still has access to the courts, the, the seat of justice. And uh, I find that uh, significant. All right. By the way, I think that ends at the rapture. I think at the rapture of the church, uh, the, the trumpet is sounded, and the Lord shouts, and he descends with a shout, the trumpet of God. And I believe that at that point, the heavenly uh, expulsion occurs, and he no longer has access to the throne of heaven. And I believe then he's thrown down to the earth and, and uh, the issues there. So we will have privacy for the judgment seat of Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb and, and all of the, uh, the accusations are going to be a thing of the past. All right. So what happens? They're on his right hand and his left. And so the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. And interestingly enough, it's not the elect angels, I'm sure, that are volunteering to do this, uh, but the fallen angels, the wicked spirits, are more than happy to be deceivers. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And so there it is. Like I said, I don't believe Gabriel or Michael or any of the elect angels would be an implement of deceit. I believe in their, in their uh, holiness as elect angels. I believe in their uh, righteousness, that they, they would serve a protective function. They would serve uh, to bless and guard and protect, that they would not serve uh, to be an enticer. But this uh, wicked spirit clearly does. And so uh, he says, how? Okay, And that's important too. Because God is not just concerned about the what, he's concerned about the how. When he's giving in permissive, permiss, permissive will, he is establishing the limits, like he did with Job. All right, you can touch him, but don't kill him. All right, well, you can touch his family, but don't touch him. He has complete control over the how. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. And when he gives permiss, uh, permission in the permissive will of God for a fallen spirit to afflict somebody, he not only says, okay, go do it, but he says, okay, but tell me how you're going to do it. And he uh, approves of the plan. And that's what happens here. Well, how will you entice him? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now, maybe there were other means available. Maybe, um, you know, he could have uh, influenced uh, his wife or could have influenced uh, other kings or could have influenced his son or could have influenced, um, there could have been other considerations. He could have been a deceiving spirit in the ears of his generals, in the ears of his uh, military commanders or his uh, political leaders. But in, the, in, the, uh, in his prophets, in the mouth of all his prophets, and God says, all right, those, those are false prophets anyway. They're already demoniacs. They're already serving the, the fallen angelic system. So he says, all right. So permission is granted. 
Uh, he says, you are to entice him and also you are to prevail. God says, your plan is going to work. And he knows it's going to work because he knows the, uh, the end from the beginning. He knows all the what-if scenarios of the universe. He knows every uh, scenario and every alternative scenario. And so he's guaranteeing success here on this mission. Go and do so. And so it says in verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. Now did, the, did he actively do that or passively do that? He did that under what we teach is the doctrine of permissive will. What he did by allowing the fallen angel, allowing the, the evil spirit to do this. And so by doing that, God himself is said to have sent a deceiving spirit. Okay. By the way, he's going to do this again in the tribulation. He's going to send a global de- uh, deceiving spirit in the tribulation. Part of the apostasy of the, of the post-rapture uh, circumstance on the earth. All right, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. If God gives you over to the demons, look out. (laughs) That's not good. That is not good. But this is the stock and trade of the the evil spirits. By the way, uh, the same thing with Satan afflicting Job. And uh, let me grab that before we go to Psalm 119. Just because literally Job is on the way to Psalm 119. We understand the chapter one limitations. God, uh, God gives Job per, uh, or gives Satan permission, and um, in verse twelve. Yahweh says to Satan, "Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him." And so there's permissive will with limitations, okay? Similar to the how question that he asked uh, that spirit in, in 1 Kings 22, 22. And so Satan goes forth and he does everything he's allowed to do, and it doesn't work. Shows you what kind of prophet Satan is, right? <laughs> he can't even prophesy tomorrow when he says, you know, Satan says uh, in verse 11, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. That's a false prophecy. It didn't even happen. And uh, so, so much for Satan's prophecy getting fulfilled. He didn't curse God. He worshiped God. Verse 20 says he uh, shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. Said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) Okay. Well, Satan, you said he will surely curse you to your face. Seems like that's just the direct opposite. Not only did you get it wrong, you got it spectacularly wrong. All right. And so I love that. That's a good closing to that, to that chapter. But then chapter 2. Now here's what I want you to spot. Okay? Because, uh, again, there's another day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. We don't know what the frequency is. We don't know what the interval is. It doesn't tell us. But it, it kind of seems, at least in the language here, that it's, it's regular, whatever it is. The first day of every month, or the first day of the year, or the first day of the quarter, we don't know. Whatever. But whatever, again, there was a day. Here it comes again. My, you know, like my lunch with Pastor Cliff. Third Monday of every month. Okay, here it comes again. Lunch with Pastor Cliff. Um, whatever it was, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So it's a repeat from chapter 1 at whatever the interval. And Satan comes back again. 
Doesn't belong there, but he intrudes. And uh, similar question, wherever you come from, or identical question, same answer, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. But now look what the Lord says in verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And here's what's so critical. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me, notice, me, against him for me to ruin him without cause. Yahweh takes responsibility. He says that he's the one that did this. Even though Satan was the tool, even though it was under permissive will, God didn't have to give permission. So when he gives permission under permissive will, and when he uses a demon or a fallen angel, God is still the one that says, I'm doing this. Like in 1 Kings 22, that God is the one who sent a deceiving spirit into the mouth of all of his prophets there. He sent them under permissive will. Same thing here. Satan afflicted Job, but Yahweh says, I did it. You incited me to ruin Job without cause. To ruin him without cause. And so, I don't know about you, but I enjoy the fact that even if I'm under undeserved suffering and even if I'm experiencing things under permissive will, uh, from a health test to an employment test to a marriage test or whatever else, maybe there, um, God's permitting it. God's claiming ownership of it. <laughs> okay, It's His doing, and it's marvelous in His sight. He will work it together for good. Uh, and, uh, and we can understand that. All right. Anyway, that's a side trip. Back to the issue of the shekher tongue, to the idea of deceit and lying. Um, why does, you know, does that bug you at all? Why does God permit the liars to lie? If haters going to hate and liars going to lie, why does he permit that? He permits that, I think, for the maximum glory of his son, for the testimony of his children, for the contrast. Why does he allow darkness? It's a contrast to the light, is it not? Why does he allow the lies? I think the darker our world becomes, the brighter our light shines. The worse the lying becomes, the clearer our truth uh, is evident. All right. Shekhar is absolutely rejected by the Psalm 119 psalmist. So let's look at these. Starting in verse 29. And you realize it's more than just simply statements that are made. Shekhar is more than just an individual lie. It is a lifestyle. It is a way of life. It is a, it is a, it's, it's called a way. Remove the Shekhar way from me and graciously grant me your law. It's more than just an untruth that's spoken occasionally. It is an actual way, or we would call a way of life, or a pattern that is exhibited there. And he wants no part of it. As it says in verse 28, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me. Graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. What's the opposite of Shekhar? faithful and we've seen that already in in proverbs 12 okay i have chosen the faithful way so what, what, what way do you want to follow the shucker way or the faithful way i think too many churches are long down that shucker way down to verse 69 
the arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Is it fun to be slandered? Is it fun to be lied against? Well, are you going to take vengeance yourself? Or are you going to leave it with the Lord and just continue occupying your mind with truth? That's what the young man does here. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Verse 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. You know, uh, to me, it's tragic if, if the liar can just get you off track and get you out of the truth with just something as simple as a lie. Are you kidding me? He's good at what he does. He's been doing it for a long, long time. Don't, don't, don't allow it to get, you, get your eyes off the truth. I shall meditate on your precepts. Verse uh, 86, all your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. Nothing wrong with asking for help. Verse 104, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Look at that. Here's a hater. Okay. Now somebody else will come along and say, and, and nobody here has done this yet, but in the last couple of weeks, I've been waiting for it. It hasn't happened. I'm kind of thankful. Uh, but uh, I have had people that have said, uh, well, God can hate, but we don't have the capacity for that. So, so God can hate, but we should still be all about love. And, and I get what they're saying. God has capacity we don't have. Clearly, he's infinite and he's perfect and he's holy. But nevertheless, we're still talking about an attitude. And we're still told that our attitude has to be lined up with his attitude. And so I don't see where... Um, whereas in terms of hate, now the vengeance application, sure, he commands me to leave vengeance in his hands. But the hate application, I don't see a verse that says, um, I hate all these things, but don't you guys be doing that. All right, just the opposite. I see that if we have a different attitude, God himself is going to show that to us. I see that if we have a different attitude, then we need to adjust our attitude. And here we have hate on the part of the psalmist. And you know who the biggest hater is in the Bible? David is the biggest hater in the Bible. If you, go to, if you do that word study on the verb sonne and, and match it up, where, and just ask your software to show you, show me where the verb is sonne and where the subject of the verb is not God. Okay, And then you'll find all the places where human beings and angels and other people are hating. Because um, the one that the hate verses I gave you earlier uh, are all verses where uh, God is the subject of the hating. Okay, And to, to demonstrate how God hates. But then do the reverse. Search for all the places where the hater is not God. And you know who the, the biggest hater is besides God? It's David in the Psalms about I hate this, I hate that, I hate this. And he's hating the same things God's hating. And I don't think that's an accident because David is the only man in the Bible called a man after God's own heart. So shock of shocks, the man after God's own heart hates the very things that God hates. The psalmist here in Psalm 119 hates every false way. And really, hate is not the opposite of love. If you think about it, hate is the flip side of love. It is a love application. All right, so that's verse 104. We also have 118. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. Their deceitfulness is useless. So there's the shekher. Again, he wants no part of it. What use is it? God's rejected it, so why do I want to be involved with it? 
That's uh, 118, then 128. At the end of the ayin strophe here, it says, Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything, and I hate every shaker, every false way. We should hate this. Psalm 119, and then the last one is verse 163. The sheen strophe. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Man, how do you count Bible class? You know, what do you consider great spoil? You know, if you, uh, if you, uh, you know, are hunting around the attic and you find something that was there, you know, you find something buried in the backyard that you didn't put there and you think, well, what could be in here? You know, and you open it up and what would you consider great spoil? <laughs> you know, some baseball cards from the 1930s, maybe. Or, you, know, you go, wow. And your wife would say, who cares? You know, all she'd want to know is what can we sell it for? <laughs> you know, or whatever. And I'm sure Sharon can come across things that she would consider to be great spoil. And I would look at it and say, eh, all right. We all have our own perspective on what is great spoil. Okay. But do we consider the Word of God great spoil? Do we, do we drive to Cross Park Drive thinking, man, I'm going to haul in the booty on this morning, okay? B-O-O-T-Y, booty, right? Like a pirate plunder, booty. All right. I had to explain that the other day. I, Carmen didn't know what booty was. I guess there's no German word for that or something that she was troubled over my use of booty, Okay. There's different ways English can use booty, but um, I'm talking about great spoil. And, and we ought to just hunger after the truth. And we should hate the lie. And, the, the, you know, I, and I do. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. I love your law. And, and, the, and to me, the biggest lies I hate are, are those that, that Satan uses to blind the minds of the unbelieving, the lies that, that hinder the gospel, the lies that, that uh, people just swallow. And they're not always the lies you might think. In some cases, it's the elemental principles of the world we've been studying from Galatians. The lies that say, hey, I'm basically an okay person, I'm good. And the lies that, that convince the, the, the folks that they don't need to grow in the Word of God. I hate those lies. Because it's diminishing the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's derailing a believer from a path of glory that they should otherwise be on. I hate those lies. All right. So that's the tongue. We have eyes, we have a tongue. Thirdly, we have hands. Hands that shed innocent blood. Now each of these are going to start getting longer. You're going to notice that. With eyes, it was just a single adjective. Eyes, ramoth. With a tongue, it was just a tongue shecker. A single... uh, adjective but with hands we now have three words we actually have here the uh, hands and then uh, shofakoth for shedding and then dom naki dom is blood and you, you fix the naki on the end of it and you have innocent blood hands that shed innocent blood not just bloodshed innocent bloodshed Okay, because bloodshed is often necessary. Shedding blood is sometimes necessary. Sometimes it's commanded. Blood must be shed. 
in defense of the image of God, we're told. But innocent blood must not be shed. Innocent blood must be protected, must be sacred, must be guarded. And we'll see why here in a moment. So, hands, shofakoth dam naki. Shofakoth dam naki. The hands that are shedding dam naki, innocent blood. All right, now this is not a license for pacifism. It's not a verse that tells us that, well, we should not join the military and don't own a firearm and don't, uh, uh, don't salute the flag and don't vote. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a passage that uh, authorizes us to claim conscientious objector status and, and, and not register for the draft or not go to war. Uh, it is necessary. And uh, on a military basis, on a family basis, on a marital basis, to defend your wife, to defend your children, to defend your home, to defend yourself. All right. The shedding of blood is sometimes necessary. Exodus 22, 2. So if you need a couple of verses that uh, speak to this, Exodus 22.2, if a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, notice, in your house, the thief is breaking in, you know, you catch the guy in your house and you kill him, it's not innocent blood. You have no blood guilt in that circumstance. And he struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. That is a significant term, blood guiltiness. In other words, it's a justifiable homicide. Yes, you took a human life. But you took a human life sanctioned and authorized by the Word of God. The thief is the one that's breaking in. The thief is the one that's violating the commands of God. The thief is intruding into your sovereignty, which is your home, your family, okay? But if the sun has risen on him, in other words, he got away, (laughs) all right? And uh, you hunt him down. If the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account, okay? So at that point then, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, track him down, find him the next day, go get your revenge tomorrow, at that point, it's no longer self-defense. It's no longer protection. It's no longer that the heat of the moment, as we would think of it. At that point, then, it goes to the next level of the laws of divine establishment. It's no longer a volition matter, a marriage matter, or a family matter. It has now gone beyond the family to the national matter, the civic matter, whereby he has to be brought before the elders in the, city, in the gates. He has to be brought under the judicial uh, remedies that are available. And uh, that's what we see here, that he shall surely make restitution and, uh, and so forth. So whatever's stolen, he's going to make restitution, sevenfold back or whatever the prescription is. If, uh, if you can recover the stolen goods, then uh, whether an ox or a donkey, then he shall pay double. Anyway, they didn't have nearly the jail overcrowding issues that we have because most of the penalties were either just execute them on the spot or... Um, the the recompense and the recompense was assessed and if they couldn't pay it then uh, slavery uh, forced the the issue until the repayment was made uh, on that regard uh, Ecclesiastes another passage here related to the legitimate use of deadly force 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And uh, the benefit, obviously, to uh, self-defense. If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. All right, and so one-on-one, obviously, you can be overpowered. Two can resist. Anytime you can uh, uh, bring a force multiplier to bear, uh, you can protect yourself. We live in a violent world, and uh, uh, thankfully, in the modern world, uh, firearms are a marvelous force multiplier, (laughs) okay? A personal handgun is marvelous for, uh, you know, uh, women that would otherwise be overpowered by a male assailant. Uh, the, the, the handgun is a, is a great force multiplier that, uh, for personal self-defense. It is even commanded in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, and it's not blood guiltiness if, in fact, you are uh, bringing vengeance upon the uh, attack of the image of God. Okay? So if... A society is afflicting God's judgment upon the murderer. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. This is uh, after the flood. Uh, Their diet is going to be adjusted. They're going to be, thankfully, (laughs) carnivorous. All right. I certainly would not want to be an antediluvian saint where all they ate was the vegetables. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So in the eating of the meat, make sure you cook it. Make sure you drain the blood. Make sure you cook the meat. All right. Some people really look at this and say, well, does medium rare count? (laughs) All right. Well, how much grace do you have? How about that? How big a legalist are you? Um, But the principle is there. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. You know, if you've got a dog that's tasted blood, you've got to put it down. Any wild beast. Um, from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So if an animal takes a human life, the animal has to die. If a man takes a man's life, the man has to die. Okay? By the way, it's mankind. You ladies are included. Uh, whoever sheds Man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For he is in the image of God, he made man. That's the principle. Murder is an attack on the image of God. All right? This is not just a temporal life issue. The society got together and said, well, we'll have a happier culture if we're not killing each other all the time. All right? (laughs) That's probably true, but that's not the reason why we have laws in the books that say thou shalt not murder. And that's the reason why we have capital punishment as the, as the remedy, as the punishment, by, because of the image of God. Now, of course, the unbeliever doesn't understand that, and they want to do away with that and go to a life in prison kind of a thing, as if that's humane. All right. So the shedding of blood is sometimes necessary, and it is even commanded. But you will notice, who is it that is the blood avenger? Who is it that applies capital punishment? We get to Romans 13, it says, it's the state that bears the sword. Caesar does not bear the sword for nothing. All right? The governing authorities that are over you bear the sword. Uh, It's it's no longer self-defense if he's 
gotten out of your house and you hunt them down the next day. All right? We don't have family vengeance, Hatfields versus McCoys. All right? We have sovereignty within our family, but if it's my family and another family in some kind of a dispute that needs to be resolved, that has to go to the secular government. That has to go to the, you know, uh, the, 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 the local, state, or federal system, as the case may be. Because it's the state that bears the sword, not, not uh, families at that point. Now the purpose for this is in order to safeguard the sanctity of Domnaki. Now what is Domnaki? What makes blood innocent anyway? <laughs> I know what makes uh, a person innocent. I know about Adam and Eve and their innocence. I know uh, uh, the Bible says a few things kind of related to innocence. But what, is, what, what makes blood innocent? And what makes blood guilty? Because we saw blood guiltiness in one of the earlier verses there. I think Exodus 22 mentioned blood guiltiness. Okay, Well, let's look at some of these. Deuteronomy 19.10. Deuteronomy 19.10. Now again, this is part of the civil law. This is part of the civil law. And what happens here? And in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, we have given here now the cities of refuge and uh, a purpose in order to have a orderly function of criminal justice. And so uh, when you move into the land and you, you settle into their cities and their houses, and uh, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land. And, uh, and so this, the reason why is so that there is a place for the manslayer to flee there. And the reason for is so that he can get a fair trial. This is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously. So it's an accident. It's not premeditated murder. He's able to flee. And it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but he still has to face trial. When a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe, and, you know, there's accidents, hunting accidents or wood-chopping accidents or work accidents or whatever. Uh, so he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood, the blood avenger, that's an important principle. It's a principle before the giving of the law, and it has an application after the giving of the law. The blood avenger might pursue the man, manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated him previously. In other words, the, the family member, the blood avenger, uh, it's, by the way, it's the same language too in terms of the kinsman redeemer. The beauty of our Savior who has redeemed us from the cross, it's the blood avenger. All right. So he gets to flee. Now, when he gets there, then he gets a trial. And if he's found to be guilty of murder, the city of refuge does not, does not uh, bail him out. Okay? And uh, we see some of that here. Now, the whole point of this, about why we're setting up these cities of refuge, these cities for yourself, verse 10 says, it says, so that... Innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be upon you. 
The problem is if you take improper vengeance, then now you're compounding the issue. Now you have the original blood, which may not be worthy of blood guiltiness. It might be innocent blood, but it might be accidental. And now you're going to compound the issue by you yourself improperly exercising vengeance. And then blood guiltiness is upon you. So now you're adding compound uh, tragedy to the thing. But, verse 11, if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies, well, that's premeditated, that's murder, and he flees to one of these cities, well, guess what? The elders of the city shall take and send and take him from there, deliver him to the hand of the blood avenger, the avenger of blood, so that he may die. Okay? Capital punishment will be applied. It will happen at the gates. It will happen with the approval of the city elders. And the blood avenger gets to cast the first stone. He is the first one to lift his hand against the condemned. Okay? That's why you can't give false testimony. You can't bear false witness. If you're going to put a murderer to death, it's got to be on the witness of two or three. And they're going to, the witnesses are going to be the ones to be the first to cast the first stone. All right. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. You know, there are medical conditions in which you must purge the blood. There are spiritual reasons in which you must purge the blood in your land. What happens when innocent blood is shed upon a land? It's going to defile that land. Remember, the blood of Abel was crying out from the ground, and Yahweh was asking Cain, he says, where's your brother? It will defile a land. All right, so there's a principle there. Uh, Chapter 21. As long as I'm in the neighborhood. Just a page over. Uh, And here's what happens if you find a a body in uh, the open field. It's in between two towns. And well, which police force has jurisdiction? (laughs) All right. Here's person or persons unknown. And the the murderer is, is not known. Well... But which city has jurisdiction and which city is going to suffer the, 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 the uh, defilement because of the innocent blood? And so the elders are going to get together and they're going to wash their hands and they're going to swear to the Lord that uh, we did not shed this uh, blood. We didn't see it. We have no knowledge of it. Forgive your people Israel whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. You know, this is, this is, all this is for a murder victim in the streets or in the field between towns. The blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. Why do they need, why does the elders of the town need to have a civic ritual whereby they can request Yahweh's forgiveness of this murder victim, this dead body that was found in the field? And because, you know, we measured the distance, it's halfway between here and Pflugerville, but it's uh, closer to Austin than Pflugerville, so Austin bears the guilt. Well, are we a, a political body that um, protects life or not? Do we defend life? Do we stand for the image of God? Because we're accountable. All right, well, I'm out of time. Um, but you'll notice you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. The people need to be oriented to the Word of God and walk in righteousness. We need more believers walking a salt and light or, or there's no hope for this nation.
Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for opening our eyes to the things that you hate. And Father, uh, work in us that we might uh, live a life that's pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.